Now we are going to return to our study of Titus, but before we do so, I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 will uh, kind of introduce us and, and get us started this morning. We are going to see the topic of regeneration as we look at Titus 3. But before, the, before we get there, I want to give you a, a realistic and biblical illustration of what God does when he regenerates his people. So we're going to look at John 11, which it contains the account of Lazarus' death and resurrection. Mary and Martha, uh, Mary and Martha knew their, their brother was sick and sent a message to Jesus uh, so that Jesus could come healed. They'd seen Jesus heal many. It was, it was an easy, easy thing, really. Mary and Martha just send word to Jesus, and Jesus comes and heals Lazarus. Again, they had seen Jesus do this so many times. But what did Jesus do? He delayed. He intentionally delayed. He delayed four days. And then, by the time that he gets there, what's happened? Lazarus has died. Yet this intentional delay by Jesus uh, was done so that God would be glorified, not just by Lazarus' healing, but by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus told his disciples before they even got there, this is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. We're going to pick up reading it, verse uh, 23, when Jesus is interacting with Mary and Martha, and particularly Martha here in verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, I want to highlight some important details of this account. I won't do a full exposition of this. I, I've done that already. You can, you can download that message uh, online. But note these important details. Lazarus was dead for how many days? Four. Four days. He wasn't in a coma. He was stone cold dead. Being dead, Lazarus had no part in what Jesus was about to do. As you know, I'll state the obvious, a dead man cannot respond to anything or anyone. A dead man has no ability, no desire, no life, no strength, no comprehension to respond to anything. What was Lazarus' contribution to the miracle that was about to happen? Had Lazarus prayed that the Lord would come? Well, there's nothing in the text that would suggest that. The, the answer is, Lazarus' contribution was absolutely nothing. Now, to help you appreciate Lazarus' helpless state, let me remind you of a few realities concerning death. Human, human decomposition begins around four minutes after a person dies. As soon as blood circulation and respiration stop, the body has no way of getting oxygen or removing waste. Excess carbon dioxide causes an acidic environment, causing membranes and cells to rupture. The membranes release enzymes that begin eating the cells from the inside out. Rigor mortis causes muscle stiffening. Leaked enzymes begin producing many gases, which causes bloating. There could also be insect activity uh, to be present in the body. And the microorganisms and the bacteria produce an extremely unpleasant odor called putrefaction. Within 24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs decompose. Within three to five days after death, the body uh, is seriously bloated. In Lazarus' case, the body, his body was expected to be already producing that foul smell. That's why they did not want to open the, or roll away the stone in front of the tomb. And Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead four days so that his body be, would be well on its way to decomposition. That there would be no shadow of doubt that Lazarus was dead and that only a miracle from God could change the, the situation. The Jews knew that only God could raise the dead. So I ask again, what contribution did Lazarus make to the miracle that was about to happen? Nothing. Nada. Neats. Zilch. Nothing. Who takes the initiative? It's Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Notice that he does pray to the Father, and he prays aloud so that everybody who witnessed the miracle would understand that he is doing this on behalf of the Father, to exalt the Father, and to show that he is the Son of God. And what did Jesus do after praying? He cried out, he cried out in a loud voice, right? a loud voice that everybody could hear, Lazarus, 
come forth. And he didn't just invite Lazarus to come forth. No, he commanded Lazarus to come forth. This is an imperative. The command was directed to Lazarus alone. If Jesus had said, come forth, all the those who heard his, all the dead who heard his voice would have come out of the tomb, however many there would have been there. He called forth to Lazarus. And what happened? He came forth. His call to Lazarus was effectual. It produced, it instantaneously produced the attended effect. His call to Lazarus was accompanied by the power of God to, to instantaneously remove the decayed, dead, decaying cells, the filthy cells, the stench, and to create a fresh new cell so that Lazarus' body and mind could respond instantaneously. And Lazarus instantaneously knew what to do. He came out of the tomb as Jesus had commanded. Lazarus came out obediently. And at the same time, willingly. Lazarus didn't resist it, say, no, I really like this tomb. I think I'll stay here. That wasn't the case. Lazarus knew that was the place of the dead, and he did not want to be dead. He wanted to move into the realm of the living. That Lazarus was truly alive was something so obvious that that Jesus' enemies couldn't deny it. They, they could blow away some things. They could say, well, he heals by the power of Satan. But every Jew knew that only God could raise the dead. And there was Lazarus, four days dead, now alive. They, they couldn't deny that. And it was such a powerful sign that Jesus was indeed the Son of God that the Jews intended not only to kill Jesus, but also Lazarus. They're plotting. They plotted his death. Now, what, what, what does all this have to do with our study about regeneration? What we're going to look at this. Jesus' miraculous resurrection of Lazarus helps us to understand in a very tangible, very practical, very simple manner the, the, the miracle of regeneration that God must powerfully perform in, for each and every one of his children no one is saved but through the miracle of regeneration. If, if you are saved this morning, it is because God did to you spiritually what he did to Lazarus physically. He called you forth. Now some might think that I'm reading too much into this, to this historical account of Lazarus' resurrection. You know, there, that is a danger, you know, to, to take a historical account and, and kind of read into it something prescriptive rather than just seeing it as descriptive. And if John 11 were alone, meaning we didn't have other scriptures, I would agree with you. Right? It, it would be reading, but by reading into things. But by comparing scripture with scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit intends for us to see ourselves spiritually like Lazarus, who's dead in that tomb. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2. We're still in the introduction here. We're going to get to Titus, I promise. But get to Ephesians 2. This is one of those passages where comparing Scripture with Scripture really helps us. So Ephesians 2. And this is Paul's description of the pre-saved state of all believers. In particular, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 to, to 8. Let me just Let me just read that. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by, children, by, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, there's much here that we could say, and and certainly the passage is worthy of of its own sermon and, and likely multiple sermons. But so that we actually get to our study of Titus, I just want to point out some key observations, some key elements. Number one, when Paul speaks to the Ephesians, the Ephesian believers, he, he is speaking to them in a, in a way that, that tells us a lot about our own spiritual heritage. You were dead. So if you're alive today in Christ, looking back at your spiritual history, there was a time when you were dead. Now, Paul is using the word dead here in, in a metaphorical sense, not the physical sense. That's obvious from the context. So in, 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 a, in a sense, all the, all the Ephesian believers and all born-again believers today were at one point spiritually dead, just like Lazarus in that, in that tomb, dead. When Paul says that they were dead spiritually, he is saying that they were just like Lazarus, no ability to respond to God. They had no desire to respond to God. They were spiritually decaying, foul, and dirty. They had no hope of life in themselves. Like Lazarus, they could contribute absolutely nothing to the miracle of being regenerated to spiritual life. You read Ephesians 1 to 10, what part did you play? What part did the Ephesian believers play? Well, not much. I would say nothing. Because look, what changes? It's not that we figured out, oh yeah, this is what God's like and this is what he expects me to do. And we responded that way. We were dead. The, the, the change happens in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. Look at verse 4, highlights the contrast between our dead, straight, our dead state and what God does for all his people. He is rich in mercy. He has loved us with his great love. He has made us alive even when we were dead. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And he did all that. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, now please hear me carefully. This passage, um, nor any passage in Scripture, teaches fatalism or determinism. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance and repentance from sins, is necessary for salvation. Faith is very necessary. But notice what? This passage shows us that even that faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one would boast. So even your response of faith is something that God gives to you. He enables you to respond. He gives you the desire to respond in trust and in love. 
just just as actually just as Lazarus actually came forth out of the grave by God's enablement, each and every believer comes forth to exercise faith in Jesus Christ by God's enablement. And what do we say to these things? But but hallelujah, the Lord did this because without him doing this, we would still be in the grave dead, spiritually, spiritually dead. Now, with that in mind, turn to Titus 3. I told you we would get there. I admit I'm slow, but I think the, the foundation is important for us in understanding Titus. Now, in Titus, um, verses really 1, 1 to 7, he's, Titus is making an argument that we are to respond a certain way uh, toward un- the unbelieving world because of how God has treated us. That's his, that's his general argument. He's making, making the case. He's trying to show us from, from what we were saved by God's grace so that we'll respond with grace and mercy to those who, who don't deserve it. And let me, let me just read uh, verses 1 to 7. Set, set in a larger context, but we're really going to be zeroing in uh, this morning on, on verse uh, 5. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also were once, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the work that God does in us. And, and as I mentioned to you, as we look at the bigger picture, there's, there's four radiant gems in this in verses 4 to 7 that, that cause us to exalt the Lord God. One, He saved us when he, His kindness was manifested to us. That's at our salvation, when we, we comprehended who the Lord Jesus Christ is, when, when He gave us new life. The second gem was that he saved us according to his mercy alone. There wasn't, there wasn't anything in us that motivated God to do what he did. And as I've shown this already this morning, there was nothing within you that you could have changed who you were. And radiant gem number three that we're looking at this morning is that he saved us by pouring out his spirit upon us. Now, this, this gem helps us to answer the question of how did God save us? How did God work in our lives to so radically change us? It's by His Spirit. We are saved by the washing of the Holy Spirit. And and just as there are four radiant gems here, there are four God-glorifying aspects of this washing. And we're going to get into, I plan is to cover two of them this morning. Um, Lord willing, we'll get to, uh, to, to look at both of those. And the other two we'll look at next week. So, what is the first aspect of the God-glorifying uh, washing that the Holy Spirit does. Well, first, we are saved by the Holy Spirit deeply washing us. Deeply washing us. What I mean is this is a, an inside-out type of washing, not an outside-in type of washing. Now, when we see the word washing, 
in Titus uh, 3.5, we are immediately confronted with a problem. What's the problem? Well, when you hear the word washing, you think of water, uh, which is not a bad thing if we properly understand it. A lot of people attribute this or, or use this verse to kind of support uh, what is known as baptismal regeneration. They connect this with Christian baptism, saying that it is in that washing that God uh, regenerates. And those that teach that say you cannot be saved without baptism, without being baptized. Now the washing that is mentioned in Titus 3 is a fulfillment of the promise of God in Ezekiel 36. So this morning we're in various passages, but it's absolutely necessary that we understand this so we don't walk away thinking this is baptismal regeneration because it's absolutely not that. It's very clear if we rightly understand it in its context. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36... And we won't read the whole uh, chapter. There's a lot in there about, about God confronting Israel's sin and, and what he was going to do about that. Um, we're going to begin, pick up reading in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but from my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh. Remember the, the term the Lord is. That's his, that's his covenantal name, Yahweh. I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle, here, let, this is where we need to pay attention. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree, the produce of the field, so that you will not again, you will, you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. And the Lord can, goes on in promising his work of what he'll do in, in, in his people. Now notice verse 25. 
Notice verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. He's using the, the analogy of uh, the Old Testament, the sacramental system of, of sprinkling, where they would ceremonial clean, uh, uh, ceremonially clean, cleanse things, either uh, sprinkling of the blood, sometimes a sprinkling of water. Right? But here, God is not speaking about the ceremonial system. He's using that as an analogy. But he is not talking about the actual like ceremony. This is something spiritual. When he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, he is not talking about literal water. Because, look what they are cleansed of. He says, Once I'll sprinkle clean water on you, you'll be clean. I will cleanse you. Look at verse 25. I will cleanse you, what? From all your filthiness. And someone could say, well, that's exterior filthiness. Okay, we, we know from Jesus' words that Jesus wasn't so concerned about external filthiness, was he? He was concerned about the filthiness that comes from the within, right? For it's, it's, it's out, of, out of the heart that a man speaks and acts and does. And he says, just to, just to keep it in the context, he says, I'll cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Right? God was particularly confronting their idolatry, how they had p- profaned the name. Israel was designed to be God's witness to the nations. And what did they do? They profaned his name. Instead of exalting his name, they profaned his name. So they need cleansing that, that they cannot do. They need a cleansing that, that, that it's not the outside in, it's the inside out type of cleansing. Also notice verse 29, which is one of the reasons I read kind of a little bit further than, than I would have normally. Notice verse 29. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. Right? So you see the idea of that they needed to be cleansed. And then in verse um, 33, thus says the Lord on that day, I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. The word iniquity is, the word for, is, a, is a word meaning sin. So Jesus, uh, the Lord here, God, is is not talking about an exterior ceremonial water bath or water sprinkling, not the ceremony. He's talking about something spiritual so that when he does that, does that uh, sprinkling, that you're clean. And, and so he's using water, which we all understand. Water cleanses in a physical sense. It does cleanse. You wash your hands, you take a shower, take a bath. Um, all that cleanses on the external sense. So God is using that analogy, that common principle of water, to talk about a spiritual principle. So this, this, this speaks not of a physical water, but of a spiritual cleansing. So God is using water in a metaphorical sense to convey that, that God's spiritual work within his people. And this is reinforced by the change in analogy as we've seen in verse 26, moreover, this is describing the same event, but using a different analogy. Moreover, I I will give you, uh, sorry, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So he removes the filth and then gives them new desires, new heart, the ability to respond, the ability to do what God calls them to do, to be obedient to Him. So, obviously, that passage is not talking about a literal heart of stone because that person would be dead, right? So, I mean, just the whole analogy breaks down if we say that that's a literal heart. It's not a literal heart. 
He's using that stone in a metaphorical sense to talk about a heart that, that is hardened spiritually, that can't respond to God, that in fact hates God, can't love God, can't do righteousness. So that, that, that heart is hard like stone toward God. So God has to take out that heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, a, a, a heart that wants to do what God um, has commanded, uh, that loves God and desires to do the will of God. And so Ezekiel 36 is the basis for a passage we looked at last week, and, and I want to turn to briefly again today, and that is in the Gospel of John chapter 3 in this account with Nicodemus. So let's turn there next. Okay. Gospel of John chapter 3. And I know we looked at this some uh, last week, so um, we don't have to, to lay, uh, don't have to say a, a whole lot here, but it is important in talking about regeneration that we come to, to, to John 3. And, and let me just uh, read uh, the text for us. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these, do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things you and do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now again, I'd like to make some important observations here. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes by night, because uh, he's afraid to come by day. He's in, he's in the, the leadership of Israel. He's the teacher of Israel. So he would lose his position if they knew he was coming to Jesus. So he comes by night. And he he gives Jesus a compliment and Jesus really cuts to the chase and and uh, deals with the whole reason why Nicodemus came. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at all? Because all of the religiosity, every all the strict following of rules had not given Nicodemus any kind of confidence that he was actually in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus knows this. And so he, he, in verse 3, we see him just kind of cut to the chase. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus knows what Nicodemus needs. Right? 
and he, he, he takes them straight to them. Which is a puzzling statement to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was really hoping that Jesus would tell him to, to go do something. But he's telling Nicodemus to go, uh, to, to be, that he needs to be born again. But he's not giving him an, uh, an instruction or something to do. Um, now, Nicodemus's reply is, you know, can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He's a smart man. So he's not implying, uh, you know, literally what he's saying. He's, he's building on the analogy that Jesus is using, the analogy of rebirth, but he's mystified. He says, how is this possible? This is, this is impossible. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. It's, it's impossible with man. Um, when, and then Jesus replies with a statement slightly different, but parallel to his statement. So in verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, unless I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then look what he says in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He's given him a clue. He's given Nicodemus a clue. How, are, how is anyone born again? How is anyone born from above? Well, he says there, by born of water and the Spirit. Now, again, there are some people who say this is water baptism, but that's absolutely nonsense. It's nonsense because if Jesus was telling Nicodemus to go get baptized, Nicodemus says, great, I'll go do that. Right? He, he wouldn't have walked away saying, I don't understand. That's a, what you're saying is impossible. Jesus' point is this from, from man, this, it's impossible. So verse 5, when he's saying, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That, that is referring back to the passage in Ezekiel 36 that we already looked at. Nicodemus should have known about the promise of God to cleanse the nation of Israel from sin and provide a spiritual heart transplant. He was the teacher of Israel. He should have known that, that passage in 36, which is why Jesus says, uh, that it kind of responds in a shocking sense that Nicodemus didn't even understand this. And, and look at verse 6. What I'm saying is corroborated by verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So in the physical sense, you're born physically through your parents. Your mom gives birth to you. That's of the flesh. But you're born spiritually dead. You need to be born again. Born from above. And that's only done by the spirit. This analogy of birth is, is chosen by God intentionally. Just ask yourself, what part did you play in your birth? Hey, choose to be born? Did you will to be born? Did you want to be born? No, you played absolutely no part. Hey, your parents came together, God gave life, and you're born. You had nothing to do with it. And that is the analogy that God uses to talk about, not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense as well. And, and notice, notice what he says. What analogy does he use? Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. So speaking of the Spirit, and how the Spirit brings new life, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born in the Spirit. In other words, somebody who is born again, you see the effect of the Spirit, but that person didn't have anything to do with it. 
And, and certainly parents didn't have anything to do with that, that spiritual birth. Mankind didn't do that at all. Jesus is clearly telling Nicodemus, um, who is already born of the flesh, that he needed to be born of the Spirit. And, and we, could, we could add that Jesus' emphasis is that Nicodemus cannot control the Spirit or do anything born of the Spirit. MacArthur drives this point home. He says, the wind is invisible and unpredictable. We can't control it. We can't even resist it. It's a force that functions according to God's will alone. Jesus says the new birth functions the same way. We can't control or resist it. It operates entirely through the power of God according to His sovereign will. Regeneration is exclusively His work at the, at the idea, and the idea of sinners initiating or partnering in that work is as ridiculous as trying to steer or stop the wind. When Jesus told Nicodemus you must be born again, He was not giving the Pharisee a task to perform, nor did Nicodemus take it that way. The Apostle John drives the point home for us in the prologue of John. If you would just turn to John 1, look at verses 11 through 13. Speaking of Jesus, he came to his own, to those who were his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, what? Not of blood. That is out of the flesh, nor the will of the flesh, the desire, nor the will of man, but of God. Right? So as loving parents, you, you want your children to follow Christ and believe in Christ. But the will of a parent will never bring about the, the, the new birth that needs to happen. Only God can do that. We can pray for that. We can pray for that. But, but understand, beloved, that it is by God's will and God's will alone that people are born again. And, and I, I, in one of my reading this week, I, he, he took people to, to task. I don't remember exactly which commentator it was. He took people to task who, who are like struggling with this. They struggle with the idea that, that only God can bring someone to newness of, to newness of life. Or we call these semi-Pelagians or uh, Arminians. But he says, even Arminians pray to God for people's salvation. Why do they do that? Because God alone is the one who can change people's minds, right? So even Arminians, at, at the core of it, understand that God initiates salvation. It's His work. There's one other passage I want to take you to. 1 Corinthians 6. Again, it's a passage we went to last week, and it's really just a... Uh, providential of God that um, we talked about the necessity of conversion last week um, of, 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 of turning and today we're talking about regeneration but first Corinthians 6 again we won't spend much time here look at um, verse 9 first Corinthians 6 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Beloved, understand, notice the description of the change 
you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Right? Past tense. And it's really in that passive. It's not that you washed yourself. You were washed. God washed you. And again, this is not a water washing. This is a spiritual washing. When God saves someone, he washes them. And this is speaking of the same washing that, that we've been talking about through all these various passages, and that is mentioned in Titus 3. Right? God does the washing, or there wouldn't be change. So go back to Titus 3. Now in Titus 3, is there anything in the context in Titus 3 that helps us understand what he's talking about? Look at the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. What? What's the next phrase? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Right? So even in the context of Titus, proof, this isn't talking about baptismal regeneration. It's not Christian baptism. Right? That's not what it's talking about. Because that would be a deed done in righteousness. And it would contradict exactly what Paul is saying. So this washing is a spiritual washing. And to reinforce the point, look at the end of verse 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by whom? The Holy Spirit. This isn't a washing you do. It's not a washing your pastor does. This is a washing by the Holy Spirit. His work. His work. It's not about physical water being poured upon us. That, that would just be an, a cleansing from the outside. But we need deep cleaning. Deep spiritual cleaning. That only God can do. If you're saved this morning, it's because God saved you by pouring His Spirit upon you to wash you deeply that resulted in your conversion, that resulted in your regeneration. One, one commentator explains that washing here refers to, to um, a, a metaphor of the cleansing power of conversion. That brings us to our second point, which I'll spend a, a little bit of time. I recognize the time, but just hang in there with me. We are saved by the Holy Spirit deeply washing us. That's the first aspect of this washing. The second aspect of this washing is we are saved by the Holy Spirit powerfully washing us. So not, a, not only are we deeply washed by the Holy Spirit, we are powerfully washed by the Holy Spirit. Look with me at, at uh, Titus 3, uh, really the end of verse uh, 5. That again, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Notice that washing of regeneration it is connected logically with the renewal there. You can even speak out of a washing of renewal. Washing of regeneration, a washing of renewal. So these descriptions give us two aspects of the same work of God that he does at the moment of salvation. The word regeneration describes a, a new beginning. And the only other use of this particular Greek word occurs in Matthew 19, 28, which refers to a promise that Jesus made to the apostles. I'll just read that to you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Without building the context to understand all that Jesus is promising there, just notice that this 
this passage refers not to personal regeneration, but to a future of restoration of all things that is promised by God. When Jesus is on his glorious throne and ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel, that is yet to come. Possibly a reference to Jesus' millennial reign. And one scholar suggests that this washing of regeneration that we're talking about here in, in uh, Titus 3, uh, 3 5, uh, might better be translated as the washing of a new beginning, the washing of conversion. Right? The word is regeneration, but the idea there is conversion. It's the idea of a new beginning. Now, with the word renewal, the word renewal speaks of a transformation. And we're familiar with, with this word renewal from passages like Romans 12.2, which says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in Romans 12.2, the, the word renewing your mind um, is, is used to speak about the process of progressive sanctification, that is, growth in Christ and, and growth in overcoming sin and growth in understanding who God is in that practical sense. Yet the renewal that Paul speaks about in Titus 3.5 cannot be about this ongoing progressive sanctification that Paul talks about in Romans 12. Both are true. As one com- commentator rightly observes, in the, con- the context in Titus 3.5 requires that, that it be a once-for-all renewal because salvation is seen as an accomplished fact. So if you would, just pay attention. In, in Titus 3.5, he saved us. Past tense, not saving as an ongoing. This is past tense. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It is something which he did in a once-for-all as an accomplished fact. The washing of regeneration and renewal speaks of being washed from sin and changed spiritually to be able to respond properly to God and to God's commands. Listen to Don Green's helpful explanation of this. He says, This idea of renewal is closely related to that of regeneration. Regeneration... Um, the impartation of new life, renewal, the idea that new life comes comes with, comes with power. It comes with power. The renewal describes a transformation that took place in the deepest recess of your heart. The Spirit of God gave spiritual power to live the Christian life. That's why you changed when you became a Christian. That's why people change in real conversion. It's because suddenly there is a new power at work in their mind and in their affection and in their will, and it changes them powerfully and conforms them in every greater degrees to the image of Christ. But understand, what Paul is describing here is two aspects of the single work of the Spirit of God in conversion. He has cleansed you from sin. He gave you new life that had power with it, and that's why you changed. And so when God saved you, he cleansed you. He removed that controlling defilement of sin in a way that resembles cleansing dirt from a physical body. Only God did it on the inside where no man can touch. At the same time, he cleansed you. He gave you power to live righteously, unquote. Steve Lawson describes this as a creative Creative renovation exclusively wrought by the omnipotence of God. And adds that in regeneration, God creates a new self, mind, affections, will, and the spiritually dead sinner. So we see that God cleanses us deeply. Um, God cleanses us 
um, from 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 sin. He washes us. And and understand, beloved, that the logic of regeneration, speaking of birth and renewal, that only God can do, is something that that um, we're not. I'm not making this up this morning. You're hearing my voice. You're getting my testimony. But I, but I want you to hear some voices uh, from present and and past about this issue. John MacArthur, in our present time, the sinner is like Lazarus, dead and rotting in the tomb incapable of helping himself or responding to any stimuli of any kind. He's lifeless until God, who spoke creation into existence, speaks life into his dead corpse. Only when God bids us to come forth can we respond. J.I. Packer, who died in 2020, says this. uh, He describes regeneration as an inner recreating of fallen human nature by the gracious sovereign action of the Holy Spirit. It enlightens the blinded mind to discern spiritual realities and liberates and energizes the enslaved will for the free obedience to God. Lorraine Bettner, who died in 1990, says regeneration is said to be wrought by that same supernatural power which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Man does not possess the power of of self-regeneration And until this inward change takes place, he cannot be convinced of the truth of the gospel by any amount of external testimony. Martin Lloyd-Joins, who died in 1981, says this, The New Testament speaks of regeneration in terms of rebirth, regeneration, new life, and the dead receiving a new heart, a new creation. What is emphasized so plainly in Ezekiel 36 and in all the context is that this is God's action. No one can make a Christian but God. A man cannot make himself a new heart or change his own spirit. John Murray, who died in 1975, says this, As we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, as we are, we are we are as dependent upon the Holy Spirit as we are upon the action of our parents in connection with our natural birth. We are not begotten by our father because we decided to be. And we were not born of our mother because we decided to be. We were simply begotten and we were born. We did not decide to be born. It was Burkhoff, a theologian who died in 1957, says this, regeneration is a creative work of God and is therefore a work in which man is purely passive and in which there is no place for human cooperation. This stresses the fact that salvation is holy of God. Charles Spurgeon, who died in 1892, said, unless God, the Holy Spirit who worketh in us to will and to do, should operate upon the will and the conscience, Regeneration is an absolute impossibility, and therefore so is salvation. What, says one, do you mean to say that God absolutely interposes in the salvation of every man to make him regenerate? I do indeed. In the salvation of every person, there is an actual putting forth of divine power, whereby the dead sinner is quickened, the unwilling sinner is made willing, The desperately hard sinner has his conscience made tender, and he who rejected God and despised Christ is brought to cast himself down at the feet of Jesus. J.C. Ryle, who died in 1900, says this, No man is the author of his own existence, and no man can quicken his own soul. 
we might as well expect a dead man to give himself life as expect a natural man to make himself spiritual. A power from above must be put in exercise, even that same power which created the world. Man can do many things, but he cannot give life either to himself or to others. To give life is the peculiar prerogative of God. Well, may our Lord declare that we need to be born again. Benjamin B. Warfield, who died in 1921, says if the kingdom can be entered thus only in nakedness as a child comes into the world, all stand before it in like case. And it can come, it, it can come only to those selected, therefore, by God himself. Where none have a claim upon the law of its bestowment can only be the divine will. The initiative is taken by God. Man is renewed unto repentance. He does not repent that he may be renewed. Charles Hodge, who died in 1878, says this, Regeneration is an act of God. He is the agent. It is God who regenerates. The soul is regenerated. In this sense, the soul is passive in regeneration. Jonathan Edwards, our probably the greatest uh, theologian in, in America, and, and who died in 1758, says this, Regeneration is a remarkable work of God upon the soul, causing a great alteration of their souls, very much delivering it from its former darkness, and also setting it much more at liberty from corruptions, giving the soul a new and much clearer understanding of divine things. John Owen, who died in 1683, says this, to, to say that we are able by our own efforts to think good thoughts or to give God spiritual obedience before we are spiritually regenerated is to overthrow the gospel and the faith of the universal church in all ages. Stephen Charnock, um, who died in 1680, would be included in um, some of the uh, Puritan work along with John Owen. He says, in regeneration, man is wholly passive, in conversion, he is active. Now, I just explained in, in conversion, he's talking about repentance and faith. So that, that's, that's his term for that. In regeneration, man is wholly passive. In conversion, he is active. As a child in its first formation in the womb contributes nothing to the first infusion of life, but after it has life, it is active and its motions natural. The first reviving of us is wholly the act of God without any concurrence of the creature. John Calvin uh, says this, faith, uh, on, uh, speaking on John one uh, thirteen, he says, faith does not proceed from ourselves, but is the fruit of spiritual regeneration. For the evangelist John affirms that no man can believe until he is begotten of the Father. And in speaking about 1 John 5, 1, Calvin comments that no one can have faith except he is born of God. William Tyndale, right, one of the kind of morning lights of the Reformation, says this, we are in our second birth, God's workmanship and creation in Christ, so that as he which is yet unmade has no life or power to work, no more had we till we were made again in Christ. The will has no operation at all in the working of faith in my soul, no more than the child has in the begetting of his father. For the apostle said, is the gift of God and not of us. And then to finish with the apostle John, Again, just turning back to John, the Gospel of John, verse chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, 
who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now these are witnesses. They're witnesses of the work of God. That regeneration must be a total work of God. Because the Holy Spirit washes us deeply. The Holy Spirit washes us powerfully. It's something that we cannot do to ourselves. So when you call someone to faith, right? you pray for God's work of regeneration. Someone can assent to the mental facts of the gospel. And if the, and if and and the, their external assent may not bring about that new birth. What brings about the new birth? God. Now the good news is, right? There's nothing we can there's nothing we can do to control who God regenerates. But what do we control? The preaching of the gospel. Right? And we're going to see this more next week. But God uses his word to regenerate people. That's our, we proclaim Christ. You see it, just give you a little preview. Look at, look about verse 6. And we poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Right? This is, not, this is not God regenerating people apart from the gospel. This is God regenerating people through the gospel. It is through the gospel preached. The only reason that you believe the gospel is because God worked to enable you to believe it. Otherwise, the gospel would have bounced off you like it bounces off other unbelievers. So, so, so how do we respond to this? First, understand that you contributed nothing to your salvation Right? which is humbling. At the same time, it should cause you to rise to great heights of praise to your Lord and God because of what he has done. He didn't have to do it, but he did it. He saved you. You know What, what rejoicing? And because he has done that, because he has deeply cleansed you, deeply washed you, that he's powerfully washed you. Again, again, this feeds into doctrines like the assurance of salvation, the perseverance of the saints. You know, one doctrine feeds into another doctrine. If it's God who is doing this, then it's not up to you. And, and he will complete the work that he has begun. You know, the Lord is marvelous. All of this, all of this in the big context of Titus, just to kind of zoom out for a minute, Titus is showing us what mercy, what kindness God had upon us. Why? so that we'll respond with kindness towards those out there, outside the church, to our government, to unbelievers who don't deserve kindness, just like we used to not deserve kindness. In fact, we still don't deserve kindness, but we've received it through God. And because we've received it, He wants to use us as a channel to pour out that kindness and mercy to unbelievers. All right, that's, that's the bigger context. Titus is really very practical. It's not just theological, but it, but the practical is built on a very firm theological understanding, which is why we've taken the time to, to understand this and, and, and to help you understand. this. The whole concept of regeneration is largely misunderstood by, by so many people who think that man has some contribution to make. But if, but if you walk away with nothing else, hear the testimony of Scripture and the, and the witnesses of faithful men who have been very clear to say that, that this is God's work. Regeneration, it's God's work. It, it's not a synergistic work. Synergy means working together. Right? 
This is a monergistic work. This is what God does. God does alone. Why? Because you couldn't do anything. You simply couldn't contribute anything. So let us let us just deeply reflect on this to, to um, worship our Lord and our God as we more deeply reflect upon things like this. It causes us to rise to newness of heights and praise and glory to our Lord and our God. He gets the glory. Right? And we want to just worship and, and glorify Him. Next week we'll, we'll also look at the fact that we're saved by the Holy Spirit abundantly washing us and faithfully washing us. We'll look at those two things from verse 6 uh, next week. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, when we see texts like this and hear all of these witnesses, Ezekiel, Jesus, Paul, and the many faithful men who have rightly understood the Scriptures and came to the same conclusion that there's just there's just nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And Lord, that, 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 that this washing, that this regeneration provides a, a cleansing that we could not do on our own. It is all of you. You cleanse us, and you cleanse us at a very deep level, and you cleanse us powerfully to change us and transform us, to take people who previously hated God and make us into people who love God. Or the... the Perfect image of this is uh, uh, a good example. Of this is in, in Apostle Paul, just changing and transforming him. Once persecuting Christ, but now loving Christ and willing to suffer for Christ. Oh God, we just want to praise and exalt you for your work of regeneration. And Lord, we just thank you that you've entrusted the gospel to us. Help us to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And may our understanding of regeneration, Lord, give us greater confidence to proclaim the gospel. Because it's through that gospel that you save. It's through that gospel that you regenerate. So help us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ this week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.